This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Lady or the Tiger by Frank R. Stockton. The recording's from LibriVox, and the narrator is David Fetterman. We'll be discussing the story afterwards. The Lady or the Tiger by Frank R. Stockton Recording by David Fetterman In the very olden time, there lived a semi-barbaric king, whose ideas, though somewhat polished and sharpened by the progressiveness of distant Latin neighbors, were still large, florid, and untrammeled, as became the half of him which was barbaric. He was a man of exuberant fancy, and withal of an authority so irresistible that at his will he turned his varied fancies into facts. He was greatly given to self-communing, and when he and himself agreed upon anything, the thing was done. When every member of his domestic and political systems moved smoothly in its appointed course, his nature was bland and genial. But whenever there was a little hitch, and some of his orbs got out of their orbits, he was blander and more genial still, for nothing pleased him so much as to make the crooked straight and crush down uneven places. Among the borrowed notions by which his barbarism had become semified was that of the public arena, in which by exhibitions of manly and beastly valor the minds of his subjects were refined and cultured. But even here, the exuberant and barbaric fancy asserted itself. The arena of the king was built not to give the people an opportunity of hearing the rhapsodies of dying gladiators, nor to enable them to view the inevitable conclusion of a conflict between religious opinions and hungry jaws, but for purposes far better adapted to widen and develop the mental energies of the people. This vast amphitheater, with its encircling galleries, its mysterious vaults, and its unseen passages, was an agent of poetic justice in which crime was punished or virtue rewarded by the decrees of an impartial and incorruptible chance. When a subject was accused of a crime of sufficient importance to interest the king, public notice was given that on an appointed day the fate of the accused person would be decided in the king's arena, a structure which well deserved its name. For although its form and plan were borrowed from afar, its purpose emanated solely from the brain of this man, who, every barley corn a king, knew no tradition to which he owed more allegiance than pleased his fancy, and who engrafted on every adopted form of human thought and action the rich growth of his barbaric idealism. When all the people had assembled in the galleries, and the king, surrounded by his court, sat high up on his throne of royal state on one side of the arena, he gave a signal. A door beneath him opened, and the accused subject stepped out onto the amphitheater. Directly opposite him, on either side, in the enclosed space, were two open doors, exactly alike and side by side. It was the duty and the privilege of the person on trial to walk directly to these doors and open one of them. He could open either door he pleased, he was subject to no guidance or influence but that of the aforementioned impartial and incorruptible chance. If he opened the one, there came out of it a hungry tiger, the fiercest and most cruel that could be procured, which immediately sprang upon him and tore him to pieces as a punishment for his guilt. The moment that the case of the criminal was thus decided, doleful iron bells were clanged, great wells went up from the hired mourners posted on the outer rim of the arena, and the vast audience, with bowed heads and downcast hearts, wended slowly their homeward way, mourning greatly that one so young and fair, or so old and respected, should have merited so dire a fate. But if the accused person opened the other door, there came forth from it a lady, the most suitable to his years and station that his majesty could select from among his fair subjects and to this lady he was immediately married as a reward of his innocence. It mattered not he might already possess a wife and family, or that his affections might be engaged upon an object of his own selection. 
the king allowed no such subordinate arrangements to interfere with his great scheme of retribution and reward. The exercises, as in the other instance, took place immediately and in the arena. Another door opened beneath the king, and a priest followed by a band of choristers and dancing maidens blowing joyous airs on golden horns and treading an epithalamic measure, advanced to where the pair stood side by side, and the wedding was promptly and cheerily solemnized. When the gay brass bells rang forth their merry peals, the people shouted glad hurrahs, and the innocent man, preceded by children strewing flowers on his path, led his bride to his home. This was the king's semi-barbaric method of administering justice. Its perfect fairness is obvious. The criminal could not know out of which door would come the lady. He opened either as he pleased, without having the slightest idea whether in the next instant he was to be devoured or married. On some occasions the tiger came out of one door and on some out of the other. The decisions of this tribunal were not only fair, they were positively determinate. The accused person was instantly punished if he found himself guilty, and, if innocent, he was rewarded on the spot whether he liked it or not. There was no escape from the judgments of the king's arena. The institution was a very popular one. When the people gathered together on one of the great trial days, they never knew whether they were to witness a bloody slaughter or a hilarious wedding. This element of uncertainty lent an interest to the occasion which it could not have otherwise have attained. Thus the masses were entertained and pleased, and the thinking part of the community could bring no charge of unfairness against this plan, for did not the accused person have the whole matter in his own hands? This semi-barbaric king had a daughter, as blooming as his most florid fancies, and with a soul as fervent and imperious as his own. As is usual in such cases, she was the apple of his eye, and was loved by him above all humanity. Among his courtiers was a young man of that fineness of blood and lowness of station common to the conventional heroes of romance, who love royal maidens. This royal maiden was well satisfied with her lover, for he was handsome and brave, to a degree unsurpassed in all this kingdom and she loved him with an ardor that had enough of barbarism in it to make it exceedingly warm and strong. This love affair moved on happily for many months, until one day the king happened to discover its existence. He did not hesitate nor waver in regard to his duty in the premises. The youth was immediately cast into prison, and a day was appointed for his trial in the king's arena. This, of course, was an especially important occasion, and his majesty, as well as all the people, was greatly interested in the workings and development of this trial. Never before had such a case occurred. Never before had a subject dared to love the daughter of the king. In after years, such things became commonplace enough, but then they were in no slight degree novel and startling. The tiger cages of the kingdom were searched for the most savage and relentless beasts from which the fiercest monster might be selected for the arena. And the ranks of maiden youth and beauty throughout the land were carefully surveyed by competent judges in order that the young man might have a fitting bride, in case fate did not determine for himself a different destiny. Of course, everybody knew that the deed with which the accused was charged had been done. He had loved the princess, and neither he, she, nor anyone else thought of denying the fact the king would not think of allowing any fact of this kind to interfere with the workings of the tribunal, in which he took such great delight and satisfaction. No matter how the affair turned out, the youth would be disposed of, and the king would take an aesthetic pleasure in watching the course of events, which would determine whether or not the young man had done wrong in allowing himself to love the princess. The appointed day arrived. From far and near the people gathered and thronged the great galleries of the arena and crowds unable to gain admittance massed themselves against its outside walls. The king and his court were in their places opposite the twin doors, those fateful portals so terrible in their similarity. All was ready. The signal was given. A door beneath the royal party opened, and the lover of the princess walked into the arena. Tall, beautiful, fair, his appearance was greeted with a low hum of admiration and anxiety. 
half the audience had not known so grand a youth had lived among them. No wonder the princess loved him. What a terrible thing for him to be there. As the youth advanced into the arena, he turned, as the custom was, to bow to the king, but he did not think at all of that royal personage. His eyes were fixed upon the princess, who sat to the right of her father. Had it not been for the moiety of barbarism in her nature, it is probable that the lady would not have been there. But her intense and fervid soul would not allow her to be absent on an occasion in which she was so terribly interested. From the moment that the decree had gone forth that her lover should decide his fate in the king's arena, she had thought of nothing, night or day, with this great event and the various subjects connected with it. Possessed of more power, influence, and force of character than anyone who had ever been interested in such a case, she had done what no other person had done. She had possessed herself of the secret of the doors. She knew in which of the two rooms that lay behind those doors stood the cage of the tiger with its open front, and in which waited the lady. Through these thick doors, heavily curtained with skins on the inside, it was impossible that any noise or suggestion should come from within to the person who should approach to raise the latch on one of them. But gold and the power of a woman's will had brought the secret to the princess. And not only did she know which room stood the lady ready to emerge, all blushing and radiant should her door be opened, but she knew who the lady was. It was one of the fairest and loveliest of the damsels of the court who had been selected as a reward of the accused youth, should he be proven innocent of the crime of aspiring to one so far above him. And the princess hated her. Often had she seen, or imagined that she had seen, this fair creature throwing glances of admiration upon the person of her lover, and sometimes she thought these glances were perceived and even returned. Now and then she had seen them talking together. It was but for a moment or two, but much can be said in a brief space, and it may have been on most unimportant topics, but how could she know that? The girl was lovely, but she had dared to raise her eyes to the loved one of the princess, and with all the intensity of the savage blood transmitted to her through those long lines of wholly barbaric ancestors, she hated the woman who blushed and trembled behind that silent door. When her lover turned and looked at her, and his eye met hers, and she sat there paler and whiter than anyone in the vast ocean of anxious faces about her, he saw, by that power of quick perception which is given to those whose souls are one, that she knew behind which door crouched the tiger, and behind which stood the lady. He had expected her to know it. He understood her nature, and his soul was assured she would never rest until she had made plain to herself this thing, hidden to all other lookers-on, even to the king. The only hope for the youth in which there was any element of certainty was based upon the success of the princess in discovering this mystery. In the moment he looked upon her, he saw she had succeeded, as in his soul he knew she would succeed. Then it was that his quick and anxious glance asked the question, Which? It was as plain to her as if he had shouted it from where he stood. There was not an instant to be lost. The question was asked in a flash. It must be answered in another. Her right arm lay on the cushioned parapet before her. She raised her hand and made a slight, quick movement toward the right. No one but her lover saw her. Every eye but his was fixed on the man in the arena. He turned, and with a firm and rapid step he walked across the empty space. Every heart stopped beating, every breath was held, every eye was fixed movably upon that man. Without the slightest hesitation, he went to the door on the right and opened it. Now, the point of the story is this. Did the tiger come out of that door, or did the lady? The more we reflect upon this question, the harder it is to answer. It involves a study of the human heart which leads us through devious mazes of passion, out of which it is difficult to find our way. Think of it, fair reader, not as if the decision of the question depended upon yourself, but upon that hot-blooded semi-barbaric princess, her soul at a white heat beneath the combined fires of despair and jealousy. She had lost him, but who should have him? 
How often, in her waking hours and in her dreams, had she started in wild horror and covered her face with her hands as she thought of her lover opening the door on the other side of which waited the cruel fangs of the tiger. But how much oftener had she seen him at the other door? How, in her grievous reveries, had she gnashed her teeth and torn her hair when she saw his start of rapturous delight as he opened the door of the lady? How her soul had burned in agony when she had seen him rush to meet that woman with her flushing cheek and sparkling eye of triumph. When she had seen him lead her forth, his whole frame kindled with the joy of recovered life. When she had heard the glad shouts from the multitude and the wild ringing of the happy bells. When she had seen the priest and his joyous followers advance to the couple and make them man and wife before her very eyes. And when she had seen them walk away together upon their path of flowers, followed by the tremendous shouts of the hilarious multitude, in which her one despairing shriek was lost and drowned. Would it not be better for him to die at once and go to wait for her in the blessed regions of semi-barbaric futurity? And yet, that awful tiger, those shrieks, that blood! Her decision had been indicated in an instant, but it had been made after days and nights of anguished deliberation. She had known she would be asked. She had decided what she would answer, and without the slightest hesitation she had moved her hand to the right. The question of her decision is not one to be lightly considered, and it is not for me to presume to set myself up as the one person able to answer it. And so I leave it with all of you, which came out of the open door, the lady or the tiger. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. And I'm Julie Hoverson of 19 Nocturne Boulevard. Hello. And we're going to be discussing a short story by Frank R. Stockton from 1882 called The Lady or the Tiger. Or is it The Lady or the Tiger? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I came across this story, but I just did this week, I guess. And I thought it was really cool. Julie, you've oh. read this before, right? Oh, on and off since grade school. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah they... it, used to, it used to be anthologized in a lot of short story collections as a as a classic dilemma story and stuff. And plus, if you get involved in logic puzzle type uh, books and stuff, this is also huge there. Hmm. Yeah, I think my high school did it in English class. Uh, I I think I was reading on the... ISFDB entry, or maybe the Wikipedia entry, that it that it was commonly anthologized for, because it's good at starting discussions. Um, so. I'm not sure. I, I hope so. Yeah. That's, well, it's yeah. also though. Um, it's also at least it may have fallen out of usage recently, but it's used. You know, I, I've always seen it used as a um, what do you call it a, as a metaphor. I mean, you know, which one do you choose, the lady or the tiger? I mean, without necessarily referring to the story directly, the concept of, of you know, good choice, bad choice, sight unseen is often called the lady or the tiger. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't there, a, I think the, it was said that Monty Hall had a TV show that was originally supposed to be basically this. Um I want to say deal or no deal, but I think that's a more recent one. Let's make a deal. Uh, <laughs> let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Okay. So uh, is that a couple suitcases or something? Well, he had three doors, and one of them like had a can of sardines behind it, and the other one had a new, <laughs> new car behind it. And, and the third uh, one had like a donkey and a block of hay, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, well, it wasn't always just the doors, though. I mean, he'd also do things where he'd show up with us, like, Somebody would bring a suitcase down. It was there was a wide variety of things, and people had to dress like crazy costumes. And he'd pick people from the audience depending on how silly their costumes were. Mm. And yeah, let's make a deal was huge. In fact, Monty Hall, in in return, became the word in uh, that we used in Dungeons and Dragons circles for a game master who gives you stuff without you without without actual logic behind it. So you know, right. a Monty Hall dungeon is where you get all sorts of crap for you know, the the GM is just way too generous. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, like um, it's not that it's just a uh, a variety of 
creatures like without a theme like this. It's like you know the, the amount of loot that you garner is disproportionate to the challenge right. that you faced. And right. so, I mean, people may not even remember why they call it a Monty Hall dungeon, but it's because of Monty Hall, the guy who did Let's Make a Deal. Right, okay. Uh, well, in this case, uh, I think there is definitely a preferred uh, <laughs> door. <laughs> um, even if you don't want to get married, uh, it's still preferable to uh, being torn apart by a tiger. Mm-hmm. Um well, how did it usually go when you you had it in grade school or or high school, Tam? Um, I, you mean, how did how did the what are we most fellow students uh, vote yeah. for? Or yeah, what was the interpretation? I don't I don't remember us like uh, arguing it, it, about it for for a story that starts discussion. There is a lack of discussion about it. <laughs> Julie, do you, you had again. You had it in school, right? Well, I, mostly, I read it. Ah, uh, okay. it wasn't that we read it. I read a lot of crap nobody else read when I was in school and since. Uh, I think I think that there's a number of ways you can attack it, um, and he is very careful. Frank Stockson is very very careful to to evenly weight the scales, right? Um, on both sides of the of the choice, wh- whether it's going to be tiger or lady, you get evidence as to why it might be that way. But then he says that the the decision is made in an instant, mm-hmm. which of course makes it like uh, well for us it's, it can't be made in an instant, right? No, but I mean, in the in the arena, of course, it's required. But the, the the decision also isn't his. I mean, the only decision he makes is to follow the princess's uh, right. suggestion or not. Right. But it's it's I, I think it's the decision is entirely based upon what you think the character of women is, not the character of this particular woman. Because she's equally uh, uh, passionate and equally barbaric, uh, or equally loving and equally jealous. Mm. So, if I would like the students, I I went over this story with this week. They would say things like, uh, "Oh, it's obvious which one it is," and I'm like, "Really? It's not really obvious to me." But. they said it would be the tiger, or they said uh, another one said that it, you know it would, it would be the lady, and the argument was usually just they just seemed to have assumed that that side would work. Like uh, if if you pick the the lady, it's because she even though she can't have her her man, uh, she still loves him, mm-hmm. or uh, she's jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like they're just discounting one side of the argument. I well, think. another interesting discussion you might have involving the jealous side is if, because they do specify in the story that the woman is somebody who actually already is interested in this guy. So if if it was somebody who wasn't an unfavored choice, would she then feel less inclined to let him die? I mean, that, if you know, if, if she knew it was just some random ugly woman behind the count curtain who he wouldn't, he he might still love her even if he couldn't have her. You know, it's, there's so many different ways to debate that. Yeah, depending on how barbaric you find women. I, that's that's basically what I did too. Is I said, you know, well, what about this aspect? Uh, you know, she she's she's seen them looking at each other, and uh, she would have to know that. Uh, he's getting along better without her. Whereas, you know, in the story it even says, you know, oh, the blood the blood would be bad and she wouldn't want to see that happen to her lover. But on the other hand, it would be good to get it over with. Yeah. <laughs> Other than have it drawn out. Um, but I think, like, if you, if you have a, an instantaneous reaction, despite all the evidence, that would make, you know, uh, you either think that the world is a, or at least women, are good, or women are bad. It's very. It's a very curious story too, because notice there is no punishment for. There's there's no option for females to be criminals and to be accused. Oh, they <laughs> just only, get sewn in a bag and thrown in the river, don't they? 
perhaps. Sorry. Um, that'd be a semi-barbaric, uh, fully barbaric king, perhaps. But uh, or, they, or they, maybe they have they, to marry a criminal as their punishment. Yeah, maybe that they, they have to marry a criminal. Uh, what do you what do you make of the idea that uh, that that because the the potential criminal chooses his own door that he gets justice no matter which door he opens? Part of that does come down to the concept of divine intervention in you know in 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 determining whether or not they're guilty as much as whether or not uh, whether or not they. Uh, need to be punished and to what degree. I, there's a lot of different cultures that have some test like that where... Trial by, by ordeal. Uh, yeah, trial by ordeal of some kind where, you know, if obviously if you succeed, then you were meant to succeed and therefore the other side should shut up and get on with it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Elections recently. Sorry. And, hmm. um, <laughs> Did we get the tiger or the lady? Uh, you know, for you last time, I think. <laughs> I think it, it totally depends on who you talk to and what news channel you watch. But um, the, the the there was something I read and I can't quote it, so I mean I can't make any definitive statement about it. But something in some book somewhere about a an idea that there was a, a culture where if a question came up about uh if a question came up about you know who who was right in some particular instance uh the they there was there was a box and inside one side of the box was a viper and the other side of the box was a a knife or or something and if you you know grab the right we you had to reach into one of these two slots and uh you know and see what you got I don't know. That, that's probably very probably from a fiction book somewhere, so it probably doesn't count. But I mean, it, well, it's it's similar. Yeah. It's some variation. But part of what is important is the unhesitancy of the choice, because yeah, that's very maxim maximized, right? He doesn't even he knows that she's going to have done it. He knows her character, so unless he's suicidal, he's choosing what he thinks is the correct door, uh, well, the, no. the safe door. Well, I mean, not necessarily. The right, the, the the swift choice in this particular case being, for him, different because for him it's whether or not to trust her, but the swift choice in other cases is, I mean, in the in the more standard trial by uh, trial by uh, ordeal kind of thing, is if you hesitate and try to suss it out, then um, you're not letting God make the decision. Hmm. And that's and that's the important part is because if you're if the whole premise of your trial is that you know the the, the it's it's for the the you know God or deities or you know the fates whatever to make the decision if you wait and try and think it out then you're not letting them do their job. Uh, if you if you think this system is justice uh, is just then presumably you would also uh, want to do that because. Whichever choice you get, you're going to be happy, or you you will you will get your like if you're innocent, you you're out, you'll happily make your choice if you think the system works. Yeah. Well, yeah. In theory, of course, you know. I mean, we all know that no system actually works very well. Well, in this case, it doesn't have any of the vagaries of uh, you know a regular uh, court case we would see, right? There's no lawyers arguing for uh, you know whether there was evidence tampered with or, you know, any, any of that stuff. It's just, you make the choice and, and you get the punishment or the reward based upon, uh, that. The thing is, is it, there, there's, there's many problems with this system of justice other than, you know, uh, uh what the king makes the dis decision whether, uh, the, the case is sufficiently grievous to warrant a trial. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be any downside to accusing anybody of any crime. That, I'm sure they, there's very specific sets, but you know, also once you instigate something like this on a cultural level, uh, then you start looking for cases that are, and it becomes popular, and people like to watch the oh, carnage. Yeah. Then, of course, it becomes. Uh, oh, we're looking. Oh, oh, you know what? We're we're gonna take jaywalkers because we're running short on people for the tiger. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no, no. We're gonna take um, 
We're going to take, uh, what are we going to take this week? Oh, we're going to take, uh, uh, pacifists. I don't know. I mean, and it's, it's just, you start, you start nitpicking the crimes so that you can stock the, um, people's court. <laughs> Send in the Christians. Hmm? Well, uh, there is some explicit mentioning of it being a, you know, a a distant Latin neighbor. Um, But, you know, the semi-barbaric king has his own ways of doing things. Um, One one line of attack I was thinking, if you want to understand it not as just a a story about whether women are good or or bad, is is to take the, the description of of the daughter versus the father. So the father's described as as being a, a semi-barbaric king, and he, whenever something goes wrong in his kingdom, he's just like he was when things go right, which he's, you know, uh, even more like he was. And the question then becomes, well, given that he set up this very uh, arbitrary system of justice, um, isn't it possible to... And with all the other comparisons with the daughter being just like her father, you know, she's exactly half uh, barbarian, um, half civilized. Isn't it, uh, isn't it possible to argue that, yes, she, she found out the, the door which the tiger was behind and which one the lady is behind and then made a random decision, you know, by flipping a coin as to which one she was going to tell her lover, rather than, you know, she knew instantaneously uh, it must be the the lady or it must be the tiger, uh, given her character being so much described as like her father's. It's, that seems to be equally likely, which I, puts it beyond the, the uh, scope of which she actually chose, right? Mm, I I think the way that the author is leaning is more the idea that a woman will choose with her heart rather than her head or some bullshit like that because because I mean look at when it was written 1882 yeah yeah I mean at the time the general consensus was that you know women are far too emotional for this sort of thing and blah 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 and uh, <laughs> and and nowadays the other no I'm not gonna say anything. Oh. No, I I think that 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 is it, it's it's obvious that it's it's full of uh, assumptions that you know if we if we modernize this story, which is impossible because it wasn't even modern to begin with. Well, right? it's, it's a fable. It's it's, it's set in yeah, a nowhere exactly. land. Right. Exactly. So uh, if if you tried to modernize it, you would even if you set aside the genders and you set aside um the the gender relationships it's still about whether you think people are good or jealous is is love more powerful than jealousy is is uh guilt is not really mentioned but if if i was the princess and i was looking at making this decision, and I saw my lover being ripped apart by a tiger, I would feel quite guilty for having sent him to that door. True. But and that's one of the things what, that they would fall into the semi-barbaric category is because yes. a lot of times one of the attributes that's uh, – one of the qualities that's attributed to a semi-barbaric kind of uh, society is the idea that you know they do what they do and they don't feel guilt. They don't have – don't, well, I mean, at least not the the classic Western Catholic type of of guilt or shame, which is what a lot of, especially in Victorian times, a lot of what you'd be running on in this kind of story. Well, uh, Tam, which would you pick, Lady or the Tiger? Tiger. So, you think she chose the Tiger because uh, the she's she the princess seems very tempestuous. She's definitely tempestuously uh, inclined, Julie. Oh, it's probably a very, very sexy tiger. <laughs> it's a lady tiger. I, I, I was thinking it's Catwoman. They're both tigers, right? There's <laughs> uh, the tigers behind both doors. I mean, if if you're the king and you want you want, uh, well, that you know, that is actually a very valid argument. Is the question of whether or not there actually is a lady? Because yeah, if exactly. no one ever sees it, 
then there's no way to tell it what was behind the other door, and so everybody picks the tiger. Obviously, the king's well, very everybody. Right. Yeah, Be- yeah. The- Obviously, the king's very righteous because everyone he accuses is actually guilty. Apparently, yeah. I mean, so it adds to his credibility. The very wise king, because yeah, sometimes he he sends two ladies behind two doors. Sometimes he sends uh, two tigers behind two doors. Yeah. Uh, so that no matter what happens, and then sometimes open the door and it's just a donkey and a bale of hay. <laughs> I was going to say sardines. Mm. <laughs> what always got me was on, mon- on on the prices, right? They would put in live animals, like a donkey and a bale of hay, and you're like, really, really, what the hell am I going to do with a donkey? <laughs> or I I love donkeys, thank you. <laughs> well, I always assumed they were able to trade it in or something. It was absolutely worthless to them. It's like, I mean, I know it's the 60s, but most people are still actually living in an urban environment, and a donkey isn't ex- exactly a house pet. You know, <laughs> I I think one of the problems with anything in a story like this is you're not just looking at the social mores of the day that it was written. You're looking at the social mores of the day it was written, imagining social mores of another imaginary culture mm. and and the way that different cultures are looked at. I mean... Uh, by, especially, I mean, especially the Victorians were very, very, we're right, everybody else is wrong, and they're all freaks, and we have to civilize them. And so something like this story could also be used as a, you know, self-justification. Well, we're obviously so much more civilized than that. But... Well, uh, I think we are more civilized than that. Uh, We don't have... Just uh, arbitrary. Uh, it's it's interesting because the fairness is conflated with arbitrariness, right? Mm-hmm. Because you get to choose the door, you are that's fair. Um, but I say you have a choice, Julie. I'm going to kill you with this knife, or I'm going to kill you with this gun. You get to choose which. Um, uh, choices uh, kick you in the balls and run. <laughs> right. I, I I would say that neither of those are particularly good choices. Right? <laughs> oh, I think the kick in the balls is a good choice. I, no, no, no. I mean, yes. of, of options I gave you, <laughs> I don't think you should happily accept either option. I, um, it, it, it's also curious because... Uh, it's set up so that he has to marry her, whether he wants to or not. Yeah, it's not just a uh, matter of opening a door and there's a lady, yay, I win! Right, I get you know a kiss on the cheek and I get to go home. Um, no, you have to marry her, and if you like her, that's well, that's just an added bonus. But if if you're you know you're gay or you're you're already married or what if you know, it's your own mom? No, 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 because it, it, it said, you know, it's it was very specific. He says it, yes, it was always a, should be whatever a that appropriate to you, but what if the king is just in a really bad mood that day? Uh, well, it seemed to be there, there was a, some sort of a council that decided, and then the king uh, uh, put his stamp of approval on it. So it's not like he's really hands-on on, on, the, on the searching for the tiger or the searching for the, the most appropriate. Yeah, uh, but that seems like the kind of really crummy punishment that they... That that a posited barbaric culture could posit- positively inflict on someone just to be really, really crummy. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it seems to me that the, the king is enjoying this particular show a little more than he should. Uh, yeah. Given his, the king needs to get a life. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, he also, it, it's, it's funny the way that he's described his his nature is, uh, let's see, he was greatly given to self-communing. <laughs> when he and himself agreed upon anything, the thing was done. So he says, hmm, I think I should have some toast. Oh, that's a very good idea. I should have some toast. <laughs> Not a, no, it's, it, this is the guy who's talking to himself, and yeah. he takes his own counsel. Um, and then when things go a certain way, that's fine. And then when things don't go a certain way, that's even better. Mm. So he's always right. He just changes his mind. It's it, uh, he's always right because he always agrees with himself. Ah. And he likes drama. <laughs> he definitely likes drama, as do the people of this semi-barbaric kingdom. 
For a story, for a story that is about uh, starting conversations, I think this one is actually not that great because it's so clear cut that it's just not fair. <laughs> well, it depends on the group you're dealing with because if you're talking to, if you're dealing with something as a an ethics question, if you've got a group of people and you're very specifically discussing something for a reason, like in a classroom or something, mm-hmm. then it's different than if you're just trying to start a conversation with it. I mean, because most people, it, it, it's it's the same problem I have with a lot of philosophy, which is, you know, I, I had a friend who was studying philosophy, and he would uh, occasionally burst out with these random statements like, so which one do you think uh, came first, evil, or do you think, do you think God created evil, or did, is evil inherent and God is good? And I'm like, I don't care. And he'd be like, no, 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 it's very important. This is for the soul-searching of the... I'm like, it sounds like a stupid argument. <laughs> but it, it totally just depends on where you're approaching it from. You know, philosophy students shouldn't talk to me. You, you just don't care? It, it it has no impact on my life. I could give a crap. I, I'm not sure this is a philosophy uh, story as much as it is. It's more like a uh, a it's a game theory. Uh, yeah, it's game theory. So it's also which is related, but it's it's kind of like um, uh, a thought experiment that is trying to equal. It's very obvious that Stockton is trying to make it equally balanced, mm-hmm. so that. It's all about what you bring to it. So I, I call a uh, certain set of stories that I give students, you know, not Ray Bradbury's style stories where he's trying to give a mood. Uh, he's trying to, you know, replicate in you something that he feels. Mm-hmm. But rather um, a Rorschach kind of story where you present the story and they tell you what they see. Yeah. Um, and... In this case, it's it's so equally weighted as to be uh, it, it's it's a coin toss for me. I I, I look at it and I I have no idea what what could, what the answer is because there's not enough evidence. I can throw myself against the story many times and I'll still get the the coin toss problem. Mm. Well, and, and to me. Also, I mean, if you're looking at it through character motivations, like which one would the princess tell him, blah, 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 then they, to me, from a modern perspective, they haven't given us enough information about the characters because you can't just generically say she's half barbaric and half civilized and tell me who that person really is. You know, to me, I would have to know more about the people to be able to make any kind of judgment because I'm looking at it from a modern viewpoint where we're used to having characters actually with lots and lots of backstory and motivation and, you know, and, and actual, you know, where you, you get used to knowing more about what makes them tick. Uh, you know, there, there is a sequel to this story. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, it's called uh, Batman mm. versus Catwoman. <laughs> uh, it's called the Discourager of Hesitancy. There it is. Um, and I haven't read it, but uh, so it it takes it takes as the I guess the problem is is people asked him Stockton. So which was it? The Lady or the Tiger. And even though the narrator comes out and says, it's not for me to tell you uh, what it is, you have to make up your own decision. Um, I guess people weren't satisfied with that. <laughs> As, you know... Tell us, damn it. Yeah, basically. Um, and so he comes up with a sequel of sorts. Let's see if I can get the description here. But yeah, there, there it is. You don't resolve it in the sequel, right? Uh, well, the, here's the description. Okay, okay so uh, this discourage of hesitancy is a man must correctly choose among an apparently identical maidens or face instant death, despite his its posture. Yeah, as a sequel of sorts to Lady of the Tiger, the story's conundrum is recapitulated as the 
as the later story opens, the tale does not answer the questions posed by the end of the previous story. What it is is some travelers come from a faraway land, having heard of the strange behavior of the king and in his arena, and they are curious as to what befell uh, the daughter's suitor. You know, did he get the tiger or did he get the lady? And when he they approach the vizier or whatever, they say, we will tell you the answer if you can uh, guess which woman here you have just married. <laughs> and they give like 40 women or something. And they bl- I think they blindfolded him and made sure that he didn't know who it was that he had married. And then there's a field full of, uh, uh, a field, an arena full of women. And one of them is smiling at him. And another one is frowning at him. And that's the end of the story. Uh. So, so like, it's basically this exact same thing, right? You've got a woman either being unhappy or happy. Uh, is she happy because she's not married to you? Is she happy, unhappy because she is married to you? Which one would be? And then if you get the right answer, you, you get the answer to the previous one, and if you get <laughs> if you get the wrong answer, you get instant death. I'd call that a really bad double down kind of theory. <laughs> it, it, but it, it just pushes it right. It, it does the exact same thing, but pushes it on off farther. Um, it's like flipping. You know, we're going to decide uh, what we're going to do by flipping a coin. Um, if you've ever tried to make a decision by a coin toss. Uh, you know, you, you might not be satisfied with the answer, right? Oh, yeah. Because it's, it is inherently unsatisfying to, I, I, I don't make my, what's the, speaking of Batman, is that the Two-Face, right? He makes his decisions based on that. He's very arbitrary in the, in this same sort of way. Mm-hmm. But notice that Two-Face, his decisions are based on the plot that the writers wrote rather than actual coin coin tosses right Mm -hmm. um and so when it's convenient for the plot he flips a coin and what's in (laughs) and when it's inconvenient for the plot he he flips a coin and gets the the answer that would make the story more interesting yeah hopefully you know, he probably doesn't flip a coin for everyday things. It's like, yeah, he does. Paper or plastic? I don't know. Flip a coin. <laughs> Debit or credit? Ah, <laughs> uh, credit again. I hate my credit score. <laughs> exactly. Um, the only, uh, the only other um, connection I can see that I wanted to bring up was uh, Philip K. Dick's novel, um, "The Man in the High Castle," uh, is reportedly by him. Uh, was written with the assistance of, of sort of a random coin toss style of plotting, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was very interesting. He, he was really into the, uh, Tao Te Ching, you know, the, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, I, I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Um, in fact, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's like a book, it's called the Book of Changes. It's, it's like a very popular, uh, or was a very popular way of, uh, I don't know, fortune telling. Your, yeah, fortune, fortune telling or, uh, helping you make decisions like, should I invest in a property in the Cayman Islands or? Well, it's, it's the I Ching is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, the I Ching, the book of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when he was writing the novel, he, he thought, uh, it would be a good idea to, what you do is you ask a question and then you cast the straws up into the air and depending on how they land, you get your, your calculation to figure out what page it is and then whatever line, you know, number it is in the book, that is your answer. Yeah, but it's, I mean, at a lot of times the... The, the answer you get is basically like a fortune cookie. It's like, mmm, the tiger does not eat the straw because the duck has flown away. And you're like, mm, what is that? How does that apply to me wanting to, want, how does that apply to me wanting to get a job at Walmart? Well, uh, let's see. Um, the tiger does not eat the straw. Well, that, 
It's it's like reputing it, so it says don't do Walmart, right? It, it, it's interpreting again. Well, the, the, the point of it is that it's it's not telling you what to do. It is putting considerations in your head to make you think out your own problem, really, more than anything exactly. else. And it, it so it's not it's not a fortune telling thing per se. It's a it's a you know it's more of a oh you know. It's it's it, it's it's of all things a story that makes you discuss things. <laughs> well, think it through. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, sort of a a Rorschach in that mm. it it helps you clarify whatever's going on in your mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like I have a friend who used to do was a phone psychic, and <laughs> hey, you know, and and she said you know eighty percent of the time her job was not to tell someone what was going on in their life or tell them what to do, it was to agree with them about the path they already knew they should take. Mm. Because, you know, they would call up and go, oh, okay, here's my story. And half the time it was totally obvious what was going on in their life. It's like, oh, well, you know, my husband's kind of a bastard, but we've got three kids and I just don't want to... I don't want to just walk away from this, but and her job was to say say it in a way so it sounded psychic-y to tell mm. her to get the hell out of that situation or something. You know, so it, 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 it did was, she flip a coin to the to decide these? Uh... No, she actually had a, a program. <laughs> she had a computer program to lay out her tarot cards so she didn't have to shuffle. Wow, that's but um, well, no, I mean it's because it's the interpretations and it's the person you're talking to and what they what they need, what they really need to hear. I mean, she got a lot of people who were like, oh, I've got money troubles because my husband spends too much. Okay, maybe you need... I see the cards are telling me that you need to be in your own place for a while. You need to take time to recharge. I think you're going to have to step away from this relationship for a little bit, you know, and, and that will give you some time to consider and decide what to do, you know. Well, really, you know, the, what she wants to say is, get the hell out of there, he's a bastard. And, but, you know, it's put in a way so that it sounds like it's really, you know, this spiritual wisdom council stuff. When, you know, you're, they already know what they want, need to do, they just can't do it on their own because they're unsure of their own ability to make decisions. Hmm. It sounds weird, but... It, it does make a lot of sense, actually, because, I mean, who calls phone psychics except people who don't know what the, <laughs> the decisions should be? <laughs> yeah, they want they want uh, confirmation. Yeah, they want somebody to agree that they have made the that they are making the right choice because they really, really aren't sure that they are. And they prefer to have div- divine or uh, supernatural. Uh backing. Well, they figure that somebody who has no stake in it is going to be more uh I mean if they go to their mother, their mother's going to say one thing, if they go to their mother-in-law, the mother-in-law is going to say something else. Their friends are all going to agree with them or their husband whoever, you know. And so somebody who has no stake in it, who has no connection to it is going to be more impartial and be able to tell you if you're just overreacting, which is one of the hmm. things that they always say, "Oh, you're just being too sensitive about stuff." It's like, am I being too sensitive? No, you know, you're not being too sensitive. You need to get the hell out of there. Sometimes people are too sensitive, though. They are, but again, you know, that's why they want an impartial observer to tell them that they are or are not. Um, well, another one of the, I, I've listened in on a few of these calls, and they were kind of, I mean, not listened in on, but just sat while she was on the phone. This was many years ago. And she'd be like, you know, she says the hardest part is that they don't give you any information when you first call. So they're going, she goes, okay, uh, the cards are showing me a young person, probably male. Is there a young male in your life? Oh, yeah, that's my nephew. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and he has financial trouble. <gasps> you know, and it's just, you know, because you're playing the odds. You're You're guessing. Essentially, you're guessing because it's really obvious that you know most people are going to have something of this type or that type in their life, and 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 then they think you're awesome. <laughs> well, it's like there was a I don't know if it's considered a Ponzi scheme or not, but there once was a a guy who made a rep for never guessing wrong on Wall Street or something, and the way he the way it was done, I mean, it was this is a, a classic con, really. 
um, the way they do it is you take and you send out a hundred predictions. Mm-hmm. You heard this one? Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, it's a guy who's sending out a bunch of letters each week, and every time he he makes a wrong prediction, he doesn't send any more letters to those people anymore. Well, he basically, he sends out a hundred predictions. Fifty of them say one thing. Fifty of them say the opposite thing. So that um, that fifty of them are obviously right. And the next week, he he discards all the ones that were wrong and rewrites to the ones that he was right about and tells them the next thing. And he splits it again, so 50 of them get one mm-hmm. thing, 50 of them. So you whittle it down to about two people who think that you are the shit. Mm-hmm. And, and that you can do no wrong, and they will do whatever you say because everything you've done has been right. Right. Yeah, so that that uh, selection bias is not seen by them. It's only seen by you. Of course. If you're the the scammer. Yeah. So uh <laughs> it's it, it does come back to our original story because she is the only one who sees whether it's a tiger or a lady behind the right door. And she is the one who her boyfriend uh, uh, gets his information from? Uh, I was thinking maybe he's he knows her nature, so it's a double bluff. She she says go to the right because that's where the uh, the tiger is, and he says, yeah, I know you. You say go to the right because that's where the lady is, so I'm going to go to the left. But it's a double bluff, so I'm going to go to the right. It does double bluff things. <laughs> don't really help you much, do they? <laughs> well, also. I mean, it's also a, another possibility that you haven't even considered, which is maybe her father knows her that well, too, and has decided yeah. to do something to screw with the odds after releasing fake information to her so that she doesn't have the real information. I mean, if he's that barbaric and he knows her, then, you know, why not? I mean, he's already punishing her for what she's done by punishing her lover, and so, therefore, there's no reason for him to to abide by his own rules, you know, because this is a special case. <laughs> well, it, I think it, there is a line in there about he would be pleased no matter what happened because it it would be out of it, he would be out of the situation of according to that either he'd be married and and be un, uh, unable to resume the relationship or he'd be dead, which would be also satisfactory. True, but the, you know you've got to think about which. I mean, the king. I mean, let's face it. Even if he's married, they could still be carrying on an affair with her. For crying That's out true. loud, they're they're assuming a whole different set of things going on there. Otherwise, but um, I mean, because yeah, it it, it it you also have to consider what what would be a kind of punishment for adultery, and why couldn't you carry on with him <laughs> afterwards? The punishment for adultery is you you get put on trial which means you have a 50-50 chance of getting eaten or getting a new wife. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question because especially since this was written in, uh, in the Victorian times, you know, that it's, it's, there's a whole different moral set from the culture that's reading this story as well as the, the imaginary culture that's taking part in it. It's a, it's a, it's a light on... Uh, it just seems to be a part of pop culture now, like... Well, yeah, it's it's sort of oh. hidden pop culture though, because I I was only aware of people using the the expression, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. wasn't aware that there was an actual story. And I think right. that that's. That. I don't, I don't know that hidden is the right word. I might say um, uh, almost obsolete pop culture because it's it's yeah, it is kind of obsolete pop culture. Absolutely. I mean, we, it's it's there's so many things like you know. Well, fine, like for crying out loud, Zoot Suit Riot. You know, there were, there were Zoot Suit Riots. It's not a joke. It was actually a thing that happened. But, you know, now it's a song and people think it's funny, but, you know, it was... Time, it was a serious business. No, it was. It was because... because no, there's a, there's a whole... You want to know why? Because okay. um, in World War II, there was fabric rationing because the wools and things had to be saved for uniforms. And the zoot suit was a protest against fabric rationing because it used so much fabric to make it that you it was illegal. It was literally illegal. And um and so 
so anybody wearing a zoot suit was un-American, and and, and our servicemen who were on off duty in port would go beat the shit out of anybody in a zoot suit because they were un-American and they were breaking the law. Hey, I got this zoot suit before the war. Give me a break. No, well, it also didn't help that zoot suits were essentially gang colors. I mean, they were, they were. It wasn't mainstream. It was what was worn by the the people in uh, non-white cultures. So basically, you're saying like, uh, you know, when when there's gas rationing, people driving Hummers. It's it's like that. Well, it's different nowadays because we don't have the same perception of. Well, most people don't have the same quite the same perception of um, of of un-American being something that you know actually. Should. No, no flag pin means un-American as far as I. Oh, there's I can tell. so many different things. Everybody's got a different thing, but it's also one of those things where there's a lot more follow-up and a lot more. You could go to jail for pulling that kind of crap if you do that. You know. Uh, against the person who beats the shit out of the person they perceive as un-American. Uh, so anyway, I mean, it's 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 uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other sometimes. And there's another phrase that I don't know where it comes from. And <laughs> Frank Carr Stockton story, no doubt. <laughs> but it's just it's just it's very interesting to see where things come from. And I mean, when I'm writing stories for my show, I do a lot of stuff that's in period of one kind or another. And there's times when I have to go back and figure out if a phrase that I'm using is actually accurate for the time. And that's actually been really interesting because you go, oh, you know, six of one, half a dozen, another, wait a minute, was that, that around in the 20s? Okay, I got to go look it up. I mean, I recently looked up snug and a bug in a rug because uh, I was using that in a in, in the rounds and walls that I just put out. And... Yeah, it was appropriate. But you, know, you sit there and go, oh, wait a minute. Because if you don't think about it, then somebody might call you on it. They're like, what do you mean uh, 23 to do in your Victorian situation? That, that wasn't Victorian. You know. So you're saying a snug as a bug in a rug is, is something Lovecraft would have used in one of his stories? <laughs> oh, I probably wouldn't have used it, but it, it's not inappropriate to the time period. Right. You know? And it's the kind of thing an average person could say easily. Because it dates back to like the 1700s or something. Wow. Yeah. Well, you have to have rug technology. And bugs, <laughs> bugs are easy, easy actually, to get. Yeah, so. Actually, at the time, a rug was um, more of a a blanket, a, a lap quilt kind of thing than than <laughs> something that you laid on the floor. Okay. Uh, I don't want a lap quilt quilt full of bugs myself. Nobody does. Well, you know, it's just like uh, you know what a nitpicker is. Yes, I do. <laughs> Sadly, I do. Uh, I like short hair for that reason. You can always yes. shave it off. Not have to pick any more nits. Yep, but see, that's you know, how many people really think twice about those kind of phrases that they use. Or, uh, yeah, almost everything that uh, Bugs Bunny says. <laughs> I think there's probably more uh, more phraseology from Bugs Bunny that has, you know, uh, been based on that sort of pop culture uh, language and references that, you know. Yeah. I remember, you know, all the guests, uh, sort of guest characters who would appear on the show, uh, not the show, the the cartoons, is like, that's got to be some actor from the time that everybody knows and would have laughed at. Mm. Uh, But in, you know, in four or five years, nobody's going to remember who Mitt Romney is. Um, but if he's in, you know, this week's cartoon, he's, he's, you know, everybody recognizes him. Well, you think so, but, you know, then you go back and you realize that something that you think of as being obvious is suddenly, well, then you feel really old. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, as an example, do you remember Max Headroom? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do I. You know, but you, you, the average person nowadays who was born since then, no. Even though it was, oh, yeah, it's been rerun though. That's not I mean, recently. Not no, much. it hasn't. That's what I'm saying. It, yeah, it, it just came out on video finally. But yeah. if you think back to was early '90s when it was first out, Max Headroom, the character 
was huge because he was um, the the Coke Coke, sponsor. He was a Coca-Cola sponsor, and he was parodied in McDonald ads. And he was, I mean, you know, and you get on in this stuff, and and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, that was that was ubiquitous at the time, and now it's unheard of. You know, so I've I've even got a reference to it on the website. There's a uh, I've got three listings for the ads, and instead of putting advertisement, advertisement, I put blipvert. <laughs> because well, I mean, it it was it was it was a really interesting kind of ahead of its time kind of thing, and it's very. Sad. I think it still is ahead of its it time. It really it's, is, and a lot of stuff in it is very um, timely. It's like they live needs to be remade for the iPhone generation. <laughs> oh. uh, it'll be an I- iPhone uh, Google goggles or something or something yeah I mean just something because that thing that- uh, they are remaking it by the way I believe oh, they are okay yeah so I'm not so huh. I think uh, I watched the you know I watched we talked about it not that long ago uh, the original uh, they live mm. I know that that was your Halloween costume this yeah. year yeah <laughs> um, uh, nada you, yeah you wore the nada costume yeah um but uh, it, it is incredibly uh, appropriate for our times, right? Oh yeah, still, or even more so than it was. Yeah. Uh, There's a, it, was it mid eighties? Eighty eight. Yeah, so it, it was kind of like that wasn't uh, as full of depression era recession magnified era as as it it seems like it would be, you know. A couple of years ago. No, it, it was because they were all in a shanty town and stuff. I mean, that was pretty intense. Now, I recall seeing shanty towns during the Reagan era. Um, huh. You know, they they on the side of the road when my school bus was going by. There were people living in tents um, huh. off the freeway. In, in mm. you know, and uh, so you know, it's it's not like that's an unheard of thing in since the the 30s, right? Um, but uh yes, I am that old. Oh, whatever. And <laughs> old enough to not give a damn anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh the uh another movie actually that is also surprisingly on point despite the fact that it was sort of a dismal movie to most people um is a movie called Shock Treatment. The so-called sequel to Rocky Horror. Oh, I think I, I've i heard you mention that before. Cause Maybe on your tone didactics. Oh, that's very possible. But, but the thing with it is, it's, it's, it's a terrible sequel. It's, it's, if you look at it as a sequel to Rocky Horror, it's a terrible sequel. But it's a movie all about a pervasive culture of reality TV, and it was made in 1970, or no, 1980. So, I mean... And nowadays, it is so on point. Hmm. I mean, the whole idea is here's this whole town that essentially lives inside a studio for a week at a time to be on TV. And, and, and they're moving from one show to another and the construction of fame and the construction of celebrities. And it's just like, holy crap, that is about as prophetic as you can get in hmm. some ways for what we've got now for culture. And so it's it's really fascinating to go back and look at that. Plus, it's got some very catchy tunes. <laughs> it's a musical. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's a sequel to Rocky Horror. Oh, okay, I've like never I said, seen it. it's it's a crappy sequel, but it's a fun movie. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>